Amen. Amen. Thank you, James. One thing I learned about snow as we headed down the hill, snow melts. So we started with about, probably about 100 pounds of snow and ended up with 20. But uh, we, we made it home with some snow. It's crazy. Two-hour drive off the hill, and we had about three, three, uh, three feet of snow up there in Lake Arrowhead. A lot of fun. Um, well, we're starting a new series. Look at that. Jesus, our King. We're going to be talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's been foretold, uh, was foretold about in the Old Testament. So we're going to be looking at the Jesus, what I'm calling the Jesus prophecies in the book of Isaiah. If I could only take two books of the Bible and uh, uh, I was deserted on a, uh, you know, I was deserted on an island and the only two books, I would take the book of Isaiah and the book of Romans. Those would be most certainly the two, one out of the old, one out of the new. I have been studying Isaiah for many years. I will continue studying Isaiah. It is just loaded, packed, loaded with God's promises about the future. God's, God's comfort and his concern and care, even in the midst of war and chaos and difficulty and hardship and rebellion. God is still faithful. God is so faithful. And what God does is he brings a hope. And this morning we're going to talk about hope through Isaiah. And we're going to be looking at one of the key prophecies here that a virgin will give birth. The next slide in Isaiah chapter 7. And then we're going to jump to chapter uh, 9 as well. But those, these two are connected. In chapter 7, it says in verse 14, the prophecy is, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. This is in the Old Testament. This is 1,600 years before it actually happened. I mean, we know now, looking back, that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. And that's what's so powerful about them, is that Jesus is the one who fulfills these ancient prophecies or uh, promises from God that were written over 1,600 years, over maybe close to 1,000 years before Jesus even came. And so we often feel that, that, that the birth of our faith of Christianity begins at Christmas time. We think that the birth of Jesus is the beginning of our faith. But in fact, the birth of our faith begins way back in the Old Testament. It begins back when God begins promising to the nation and to the people of humankind that he will bring a savior. It doesn't just appear and all of a sudden our faith, our faith just blossoms here in the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Luke at the very beginning when we read the, the Advent story, the Christmas story. In fact, we have to go all the way back into the Old Testament to discover that's where it all began. Hope begins in the past. And hope is secure because it's in the past. It took a long time to develop, and that's what we're going to look at this morning and for the next several weeks. The, the prophecies concerning Jesus give us a great hope and give us a confidence today because something God promised in the past. In fact, in the Matthew account, if you have your Bibles there, if you look at the Matthew account of this particular passage, we find that, um, that, that the Magi are actually searching for this one that uh, is called the king. 
the king of Israel. How did they even know that? How did they even begin this search coming from the Near East? Why were they even headed in this direction? All because of prophecy. All because they read the prophecies and knew that something was about to happen in Bethlehem that had been prophesied by the prophets. And so they believed them and they followed the evidence to the event, which is the birth of Christ. But they're looking at this, and in the gospel it says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the one prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And all these things become true in Christ. But let's go back to the original story. Let's go way back into Isaiah and look at what's going on. The grand story. The grand story is God's desire to redeem his people by bringing a Messiah, Savior, to save the world. And the Christmas story fits into that great story because it's the event that's been prophesied of the giving of the Son, Jesus, for this very purpose. And so it fits into a greater story. In fact, when you read through Acts, you look at all the the apostles, and the apostles begin to tell the people about Jesus. Jesus' three-year ministry is over. He's been crucified. He's resurrected and ascended. And now they're telling the story. They always begin, not at the birth of Jesus, they begin with the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. Why? Because that forms the foundation and builds the confidence for what they're going to talk about, Jesus himself, the Savior of the world. And so that's what we're going to do as well. And in this Isaiah passage, I'm just going to touch on a few things in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, and then we're really going to dive into chapter 9. But in chapter 7, it all begins, now it came about in the days of Ahaz. He's the king of the southern part of Israel. Israel is now divided. This is 8th century B.C. Israel, the great nation... The the promised nation that that all would come from Israel, that they would be a light to the nations, is now they're in civil war. They're they're separated by a border. There's a northern Israel and a southern Israel, and they're now in conflict and they're fighting. This wasn't God's plan. There is a war in the midst of the great hope. And Ahaz is the king of the south. Pekah is the king of the north, and Pekah is now invading. The northern is invading the southern with the help of Syria. So Syria has teamed up with the northern part of Israel to attack the southern part, which is King Ahaz's reign and his region. And so he has a dilemma. What is he going to do? Where is his hope going to come from? So Isaiah 7 begins with this battle, and... There's a war going on, and the Lord says to Isaiah, you need to go tell the people. First of all, tell them, you and your son, Isaiah, the prophet, who's writing Isaiah, and his name is Sher Joshub. Sher Joshub means a remnant will remain. I mean, he named his son as a promise that God will leave a remnant in the midst of this war, in the midst of this chaos, no matter what happens, there's a remnant. It's going to remain. God's promises are going to be fulfilled. God will continue his work. We know that. We're secure in that. Go tell the people. Go tell Ahaz, be calm. Don't fear. Don't be faint-hearted. 
Because the nations will fall, but the remnant will remain. In fact, Israel will fall for a time, for a season, but something good's going to come out of the ashes. Something powerful, something that will remain will come out of this chaos. I mean, that's the backdrop of this whole story. And then it says, go to Ahaz and say, ask the Lord for a sign. And Ahaz is so prideful, he says, I don't want to ask the Lord for a sign. I don't want to test the Lord. I'm not asking for a sign. I mean, think of the pride. Here's the problem. Here's the big problem with us understanding the story of the birth of Christ. Either you get it, or you're so prideful, you don't want to get it. And Ahaz was in this position where he didn't want to trust God. God said, just ask me for a sign. I'm so anticipating this, I want to tell you what the sign will be, but you got to ask me. And Ahaz says, doesn't want to ask. He says, I don't want to ask from the Lord. I'm so prideful. In fact, I don't want God to deliver me. I figured out another plan. And guess what the plan was? He went to Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser, it's a hard name to say, the third was the king over Assyria. And he went to Assyria to ask Assyria's help to fight northern Israel and Syria. And so now you've got these nations battling and this thing's going on in the midst of it. And God says, you don't want a sign? You want to trust a nation? You want to trust another king? Let me give you the sign. And here's the sign. Isaiah 7, verse 14 that a virgin will give birth to a child, a son, and you will name this son Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we don't know anything more about that until we jump to chapter 9. But we know something from this passage. And here's what we learn from this particular, particular scene here in this, uh, in this kind of story that's unfolding. We know that God gives a sign. And the sign is a son. It's a prodigy. It is, everybody thinks they've got the son or the daughter, right? Every time a child is born, 353,000 times a day, a child is born, and every single mother thinks this is the son. This is the daughter that will change the world. This is the most important, right? We, we should, right? We believe in our children. We all believe that when they were born. I, I'm not suggesting we don't after they're born, but... but it continues, but in that moment you're thinking, this is the one. This is the one that's going to carry on the family heritage, the hope of the family, carry on traditions or, or professions or a name or, 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 or a reputation or character or whatever it is. We look to these, our children that way. And God does the same way. God looks to his son, Jesus, who is to be born as the son. This is the one. Things are going to be different. Something's going to come out. And here's what's going to come out of this birth. Hope for the world. A deep hope in the midst of war and chaos and confusion. As we talked about this morning, maybe even anxiety or, or difficulty. Internal struggle and angst as well as external difficulties that we face. Behold, a virgin will give birth to this child. And this child is different. And we, we, we're being called upon on the basis of, of prophecy. Prophecy is the expectation that something's going to be different in the future. That's what prophecy is. Prophecy is expecting a promise to be fulfilled because God is a hopeful God and he wants to give us that hope. It's a, it's a, 
It's, it's literally handing you hope. It's, he's like, here, here's some more hope. Here's some more hope. Here's another prophecy. Here's hope. And he's just dishing out hope into your life. And are you Ahaz who basically says, I don't need any hope. I got this thing figured out on my own. And that's the backdrop to the story of Christmas. Whether you receive it or not, and we learn a couple things from this. I, I, I wrote down, you know, there's so many different kinds of hope, and I'm going I'm to skip over that. Uh, but I really want to get to this idea that our hope is secured in antiquity. It's the long-awaited. It's a, it's a long-awaited, executed plan. It's deferred hope. See, you can have quick hope. You can look for, I, I hope something will happen. You can have wishful thinking kind of hope. You can have an insincere kind of hope. Like, I, I'm going to engineer this to death kind of hope. I'm hoping this is going to be the best scenario. And I'll guarantee you it's going to happen because I'm going to engineer it myself. That's Ahaz. That's what he's doing. And we learn a couple things about Ahaz. He put his hope in a king to win his battle. Not a child. And we also learn that you never win your battles if your hope is in the wrong king. I mean, that's what we learn. I mean, because when we go to chapter 8, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, is, is the term that Isaiah is given from God that's going to happen. It's going to be quick. You put your hope in the wrong thing. Defeat is coming. And so we learn another thing. Whatever you place your trust in that takes the place of God, it will eventually turn on you and destroy you. Do you ever notice that? He needed hope, and yet he looked for the wrong, he looked in for the wrong source. Looked for it in the wrong source. So, what do we learn about this son, this child that comes out of this chaos? Well, I wanted to talk just briefly about hope because I think the world today needs hope. There's a lot of anxiety in the world today. There's a lot of uncertainty. There there seems like there's a lot of conflict. We know that. I mean, this is not something that's new to the world. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. And yet some of it we bring upon ourselves. We put ourselves in a position where we become almost hopeless by some of the decisions we make. And we become anxious and we suffer as a result of not putting our hope in the right thing. And for a lot of us, um, there was an article written in the Biola magazine, What Every Pastor Needs to Know About Mental Health and the Church, written by Kevin Van Lant. And it was an outstanding article. It essentially looked at some of the, the reasons why one in five Americans suffer from mental health in America. 46 million Americans. Why it's such an epidemic? Why is this, on the basis of some of the decisions that we make, this isn't saying that this is the cause of all mental health issues. This is just simply saying some of it we're putting upon ourselves and we need to wake up to this. Because we're so, we're putting our hope and confidence 
in areas that we shouldn't be putting hope and confidence. And he identifies some of them, one of being social media platforms. I mean, he's saying the, the increase in, 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 in participation in social media platforms is actually decreasing a person's well-being. That's what the data is showing. I'm just giving you the data, which, which creates a hopelessness in our minds. Well, why do we feel so hopeless? Well, the more we... Not that they're bad. It's just an overuse and an overdependence produces a decrease in well-being. That's what the data is saying. Be careful. Be mindful. Don't put your hope in that. In terms of, I think oftentimes the other the other aspect of it is techno stress, which is you're we all have phones, and when we have what it's basically saying is if you have a phone by you in the middle in the midst of a meeting, you will be less participatory in the meeting, just by the fact that your phone is right there by you. Never thought of this before. Put it away. Put it in your purse. Put it in your pocket. You, you, it increases your connectivity with people. I mean, we need to be hearing this, don't we? We need to be aware of this because we often bring upon this loneliness and hopelessness upon ourselves. In fact, some of the research says that, that Gen Z, which are the 18 to 22-year-olds, are becoming the most lonely generation of our times. Why? They would be the... You would think it would be the exact opposite, that they would be most connected, having the most excitement and the most connectivity, and yet we're finding the exact opposite because of some of these trends. There's a lack of substantive community going on. In fact, it's so dangerous. Loneliness is dangerous. I mean, the research is saying it's like, like one particular article said that it's like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I mean, we need to pay attention to this stuff. This is what's caught. This is our generation right now. It's, it's like living in the time of Israel when all these empires are folding in and fighting these battles. And, and slowly by slowly, they're being defeated. And the, the edges are coming apart. And, the, and armies are invading. And, and, and they're moving closer and closer to the center and, until there's nothing left. Until all that's left will be Jerusalem and then Babylon comes of all nations. Assyria is now gone and Babylon comes and Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys Jerusalem and that's it. And Israel is now destroyed. See, from the outside down into the deep inside. And so we need to be be mindful of where this hopelessness is coming from and what we can do. Put our hope in something else. In fact, we were away up at, the, uh, uh, up at a cabin up in uh, Lake Arrowhead. Our cabin up in Lake Arrowhead, and it snowed it's three feet. It was beautiful. All of our kids were with us for Thanksgiving. It was turning out to be a wonderful Thanksgiving, and then the lights go out at 7 a.m. on uh, Friday morning after Thanksgiving. Roads are closed up and down, three and a half feet of snow, and uh, now we're out of electricity, and... The cabin's really cold. So I start stoking the fire, and we spend the day, and it was a delightful day, and yet we learned that uh, it's often a good thing to shut off your phones because everybody's phone went off. You know, I didn't even charge my phone that night, and so it was dead. Uh, My daughter's phone was dead. In fact, we talked about Thursday, Friday being a no-phone day. 
and then God shuts off the power for the entire day. Candlelight dinner, played Monopoly by candles, candlelight, and, you know, we, we, we learned to survive with just talking with one another and being a family and working through conflict and looking at each other. And, and as the day progressed, we, we realized something. Hey, there's people around me and I need to connect with them and live my life with them. And, and it, was, it was a great reminder, just a great reminder. So, where do we go from here? Hope is long awaited, thousands of years. And yet this is the kind of hope that brings us security. In the midst of despair, this is where you put your trust. We are always looking for things to fulfill. And, and, and it's part of the research, too. Didn't talk about it, but I think a lot of it is just nervousness. I'm having a moment here where there's nothing going on between me and God or anybody else. I'm just nervous, so I'm just going to distract myself rather than in the moment recognizing what's going on and putting my hope in something greater. It's always a challenge, isn't it, to put your hope in something greater. And so chapter 8 is all about the destruction. And chapter 8, verse 9, be broken, O peoples, be shattered, give ear, all remote places, you're going to be broken. Brokenness will happen, but it's a good kind of brokenness because out of the brokenness, chapter 9, I'm going to remind you again, a child will be born, verse 6. A son will be given to us. But let's back up to verse 1 of chapter 9, and then we'll take a running start at it. And I want to show you three things in chapter 9, verses 1, all the way down to verse 7. And the very first thing is where it all comes from. Hope comes from an obscure, obscure place, historically. Notice, Naphtali. It's literally coming. This hope is coming from this Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember when Nathaniel was told that the Messiah was here and that, that, his, that his friends said, you got to come meet Jesus. And he goes, he's from Galilee. Nothing good comes from Galilee. Remember that? I mean, and, and uh, Jesus reminds him that he said that. He says, I came from Galilee. I'm the one who came from the obscure location, the northern part of Israel, that everybody thinks is insignificant. It's where the Gentiles live. You would think that the king of the Jews would come from Jerusalem and he would sit on the throne. In fact, in Babylon and in Mesopotamia, in, uh, in Assyria and all sorts of other empires, they would have this, this festival of enthronement where a king would come and sit on the throne and would be celebrated as the king. And the message would go out that the king was there. And this would happen. This happened all throughout those centuries. And yet when Jesus came, he came as a child in an obscure place. Here's the point. The first point is hope may come from obscurity, a place you least expect it. You didn't realize it. It's not the expected places. That God is at work deeper in you. You just have to watch, be observant, you really need to think about it. What's God doing in my life? See, the Messiah comes from an obscure place. It's not where you expected. It's not the big, gigantic fanfare. It's, this is this unexpected location, this obscure location, and out of that comes hope. Hope comes that way. 
It's, it's firm. It's strong. It's seasoned hope. It's hope that you can trust in your life. It's not this wishful thinking. You're not engineering it. And it's even coming from an obscure place. God just throws us off. He's just throwing you off because he wants to do something new. It's the way he works. The second thing we learn is it comes out of darkness. Do you see that? You see, the people who walk, they're, they're in a great darkness back in chapter 8. Uh, the last verse in chapter 8, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. They will be driven away in this darkness. And then in chapter 9, more darkness. The people will walk in there, and then they'll see a great light. And here's the second idea, is that hope comes out of darkness. It comes out of darkness. And it's like, and I always forget her last name. I wrote it down. Voskamp. Ann Voskamp did a little devotion that my wife told me to read before my message, and I read it. And it's a little devotion. It talks about Advent is is learning how to be uh, little pokes of light through darkness. And that's what Jesus is. He's this light that pokes through the darkness into the world. He's that kind of hope. I mean, you think about darkness, you think about the fact that the sun produces the light that we have that that fends us off from darkness. And if the sun were to burn up, several things would go wrong. We'd all die. That's one thing we know, right? First of all, the temperature would drop within the first day to zero on the earth. And then I think by the end of the year, it's like minus 100. And it would settle like at minus 400 degrees. It's weight. There's no... There's no good clothing for minus 400. Light's gone. Photosynthesis shuts down. No more oxygen. We die. It's over. Light's out. Light, on the other hand, breaks through. And it's not just light that gives physical life. It gives eternal life. That's the difference. This kind of light, this hope is a light that breaks through darkness that brings a, diff- a physical and a spiritual light for your life that will live on. That's why your hope is in that and not in anything else. And Anne goes on to say, we should all be these lights of darkness, these little pokes of light in darkness, living your life as little pokes of light. And so we're up in Lake Arrowhead, and uh, we've been kind of in the cabin for three days, getting along perfectly, and it was a wonderful, wonderful time, but we just needed to get out. And so we got out and went and had breakfast on Friday morning, Saturday morning, and uh, we drove a long way home, which is really something that Thoreau says, is that you need to take the long way to heaven in one of his poems. I like that picture. Just take the long way to heaven. And um, that's, that's what waiting is all about. And so we did. We took this long way home, and we got caught in some traffic because a car got stuck in the snow, and a truck had a chain on it and was trying to pull the car out. And there was a long line on both sides, and this is not going anywhere. I can't turn around. I can't go forward. I'm getting a little frustrated. And people are getting out of their cars to help. And it's my daughter-in-law who says, isn't this wonderful? Look at all these beautiful people that get out of their cars to help somebody else. Restoring hope in humanity. And I'm sitting in a car thinking, dang it, why didn't I get all my kids out to help? 
you know, I, I'm kidding. I should have been the one to get out of the car and help. And yet, that's the light poking through that we are to be. That reminds us that Jesus is coming and he's the light. That's the kind of light he is that brings a hope. But there's a final thing. And uh, here it is. The king comes as a child. And we, we wonder, why a child? Why is it this way? In chapter 9, 6, child will be born to us, son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the difference. This is the one. It's a child. What's the significance of that? A child is born. And what I thought about is this. It's God in the flesh who comes because he wants to meet us at our level. That's what he's doing. He's coming as a child. And so he comes in humanity to build the relationship with us so that we see the prophecy of hope being a relationship. That's why he did this. That's why he came as a child. And, and this is no ordinary child. Look at the names of this child. We all have nicknames for our kids, but none like this. The, these really are the names of all names. Look, look, look at them. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Wonderful Counselor. You, you know what that means? It literally means he's the one who brings victory into your life. That's what he does. The, the child that is born, that we celebrate as Jesus, our King, Messiah, Savior, is the one who brings you victory. Because his name is Wonderful Counselor. So think this week about the Wonderful Counselor in your life that brings you victory. It's the miracles. It's why Jesus did miracles. He did miracles in his life because he's the wonderful counselor who's victorious over death, disease. The second thing we learn is he's a mighty God. It means he's the conqueror. It's God's representative in battle. Notice in, in 9 chapter 4, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. Who's doing that? Who's breaking the slavery? Who's breaking the yoke? Who's, break, who's defeating the armies? It's the child. God brings a mighty God who is going to be victorious, who's going to do all this. The rod of their oppressors at the battle of Midian for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, a cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. I mean, this is a picture of a victorious child 
but a conquering one as well. God fights your battles. You don't fight your battles. Does Jesus fight your battles? Here it is, his name. He's also the eternal father. We all want a father. And a father is a protector. Everybody wants a father. We need fathers. And if you don't have a father, God is your father. He's protector. He is your protector. That's who he is in your life. And finally, he's the prince of peace. He brings peace. He, he, he ends all wars. All chaos, all conflict, all strife is over in Jesus. He brings peace. And so here's the application as we worship team, come on up. And let's close with some worship and some communion. And as we do that, think of these things. First of all, if Jesus is really God, if he's really the promised Messiah, the one to come, if he's really that person, if you can't just like him. See, in John Stott's basic Christianity, he gives you three options, basically. You, you, can, you, you, you can hate him. You can be scared of him. Because it's pretty scary to think of a child this powerful or you worship him. You have three options. The second thing is, we learn, is that he's human. And in his humanity, we go to him because he understands. As a child, he is the human being that understands. Dorothy Sayers, she says it best. She really does. I mean, it's worth just looking at a few lines from from her devotion on this. She says that for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. For whatever reason there is suffering in the world, we know this one thing. We may not have an answer for suffering or why things happen the way they do, but we know this one thing. God chose to take his own. He didn't take the easy way out. Whatever game he was playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He he can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty, died in disgrace, thought it well worthwhile. And so because he's a child, our hope is in him because he relates to us. It's a relatable hope. And finally, you must receive it as a gift. You got to humble yourself. Ahaz, the prideful king of the southern part of Israel, was so prideful he didn't want to receive it. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. Here's the sign. All we have to do is receive it. Why? Because as C.S. Lewis says in Miracles, it's this 
power of the higher comes down to include the lesser. God doesn't stay high and laugh at us or taunt us. The power of the higher comes down into the lower. And as Lewis says so brilliantly, he descends to reascend. He goes down to bring the whole ruined world with him. That's what Jesus is doing. So, three options. Put your trust and hope in the right king this morning. Second option or challenge is to poke light in darkness. Poke some light. Just poke right through with light, through the darkness. And third, humbly receive the gift that's right before you, a hope that's secure. Let's pray. So, Father, we're going to go to the communion table, and the communion table reminds us of the whole story that culminates with Jesus atoning for us, oh, broken, oh, broken, be broken, people. Because the Messiah is going to come and redeem us through his life, will bring forgiveness of all sin, and reunite us to you, Lord. And so when we go to the table, we remember all of that on this first, this first Sunday in Advent, the coming of Jesus for this reason. Amen.